0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Hello and welcome to our review of Game Week 2 of the Premier League. This week, we saw the two Manchester clubs, Chelsea and Hull City, continue their perfect record in the league. That's right guys, I said Hull City, with a perfect record in the league. While the likes of Sunderland, Palace and Bournemouth remain without any points on the board after two weeks. In order to discuss all ten games of the weekend, as well as some transfer news, I am joined by Kristen Henash and Karthik Krishnayer. Welcome gentlemen. In block one guys, we'll, we'll talk about uh, some of the quote-unquote, top-of-the-table stuff. Uh, at this point, it's pretty irrelevant to talk about top of the league. Uh, in Block 2, we'll update our listeners on uh, what's going on around Europe. And in Block 3, we'll talk transfer news and wrap up the remaining games. Let's start in Block 1, Chris, with United's win over Southampton. Um, the big talking point in this game was uh, Paul Pogba playing all 90 minutes. Uh, and as, um, I think it was Jamie Carragher described it, he looked like that one kid who's just uh, in high school, uh, who's just better than everybody else.
0: Yeah, I, I thought he grew into the game. His his first touch, which I think was going to be under massive scrutiny anyway, unfortunately, yeah. was a bit of an air shot. But I thought after that, you could see the confidence kind of swell in him a little bit, and he started to do really what he's done for Juventus for the last few years, which is yeah. his drive forward, maybe provide that defensive shield as well, and be someone that instigates attacks and initiates them from that central uh, midfield position. Overall, it was a good performance. I, I think, honestly, the benefit of Paul Pogba will not likely be felt this week, next week, or the week after. Mm. I think you'll see it closer to, to March and April mm. when the, the sort of business end, as we say, kicks in. That's when I think you want someone of his calibre or perceived calibre or even price tag to, to step up and really define the, the season for Manchester United.
2: Karthik, I, there's, there's, I feel like this is perfect that you're on because we haven't had a chance to talk to you for a couple of weeks. So from my perspective, when I see Pogba playing, and this comparison would be made pretty much all year for the next few years, he really is the closest thing to Yaya Toure uh, we have in the game because he he can do anything on that pitch. So as someone who's um, watched Yaya Toure over the last four or five seasons, how do you think Pogba uh, will fit into this Manchester United team?
1: Well, it depends on whether you have a guy who is playing as a pure holding number six that can play in that kind of very stationary position, mm. and then maybe join the attack on set pieces. And it appears they have that player in Marwan Fellaini. Now, that's not what David Moyes signed him to be. He signed him to play further up the pitch, but I think a lot of Pogba's success is going to depend on Fellaini. What what we saw with Yaya Torre at Manchester City was consistently he needed to have that player uh, in Gareth Barry or Nigel De Jong behind him that was winning the ball, that was staying fairly stationary, was reading the game quickly, and was able to to pass. And I think Fellaini's a much better passer than either Barry or DeYong, but able to pass out of those situations. And perhaps uh, Fellaini is going to embrace this role. It seems like after a few weeks, he, he has embraced this holding role. It's not uh, something I expected him to do, quite frankly, but uh, Jose Mourinho has obviously looked at his uh, squad and looked at, uh, the guy who would probably pair best with Paul Pogba in that midfield and maybe eventually becomes a three man midfield but right now it's it's Fellaini and Pogba and I kind of like the look of it because I think Marlon Fellaini is a fantastically talented player still. He's had a few frustrating seasons with Manchester United, but when he was at Everton, he was one of the top ten players in the Premier League, in my opinion. So I think uh, Mourinho is going to find a role where he compliments Pogba and allows Pogba to make those galloping runs, play that box-to-box Yaya Torre role, and uh, not only contribute to uh, helping Ibra and uh, Wayne Rooney and Juan Mata and Martial and whoever else score goals, but score... uh, maybe uh, double digits himself.
2: Yeah, I think your shout about the three-man midfield is accurate. I, I see in the long term, we will go to a three-man midfield. And I think it's pretty clear to me that Mourinho, is, uh, he said as much, that he's building a system around Pogba. Uh, and I think with the Fellaini thing, uh, I was surprised that Fellaini is Fellaini's the only midfielder that's played every game pretty much since the uh, uh, preseason. He, he started every game in that position. Uh, I thought it would be Schneiderlin alongside Pogba. They are the the, the French uh, connection there. Uh, and I think Schneiderlin plays the ball-winning midfielder role quite well. Uh, Fellaini has been great. He In this game, uh, his role specifically was just to collect the ball and play a short pass to Pogba, who was never more than 10, 10 to 20 feet away from uh, from Fellaini, and let Pogba take the ball, whether that meant carrying the ball into the other box himself or playing, uh, switching the flank to Valencia, which is what he did a bunch of times. So uh, what's interesting to me from, from the Pogba perspective, coming back to Pogba, is that he's going to play the role of both the target man and the playmaker uh, in this United system. So if you're an opposition manager, obviously you focus on Pogba, uh, you try to man-mark Pogba, have two players on Pogba, but if Pogba continues to do what he did in this game, which is break tackles get past players in the center of midfield it makes united a serious uh threat from from those areas uh chris let's talk about southampton really quickly i thought even though united uh, uh first of all southampton did keep the ball pretty well in general they didn't create that much but when they broke uh, especially through uh tadic uh Redman, who was stretching the play and long who was dropping uh, short i thought there were some good signs that they that they played uh, that they will continue to play well on the break
0: yeah, I, I like
2: Southampton. I thought Hoiberg in particular was, was very impressive. His post-match press award, conference was something to behold. He, he sounded like a veteran. It was really awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's something you have to, to think of with him as well. As Yeah, okay, he didn't make it a buy in Munich, but that doesn't mean he won for the scrappy, but I think actually right. perhaps a little bit unfortunate with that. I like the way he conducted things. I thought Yuri Klasse offered a, a similar sort of... Uh, benefit to the team in general. I think Southampton will be okay this season. I don't yeah. think they'll have major struggles. I don't also think they'll be able to maybe achieve what they have in previous seasons. I think there'll be a slight drop off. Because for me, relying on Shane Long to to maybe break the fifteen goal barrier is, is a big ask. And I think it was telling that last season there was I want to say three players that broke double figures for Southampton, and all kind of finished the season on a round ten. Um Pelle being one I was another I forget the third that, to me, is is indicative of a team that doesn't maybe have that sort of leading goal scorer. I think they'll hope that Charlie Austin will be that. Right. I think, honestly, he'll fill the void of, of Pella. But he also has quite a bad injury record that you have to be concerned about. As I say, though, overall, I think Southampton can take a lot from this. They were unfortunate um, to maybe not produce something mm-hmm. and maybe snatch something. But even then... It was. I think it was all about Pogba and all about Man United's just dominance, which is is hard to look away from. At least at all traffic.
2: Karthik, uh, we have final thing on this this game. We had a question on, on Twitter from a, a- Cylon. He asked about Mourinho's behavior, and I wanted to save this question for y- for you because you and I have talked about this so many times about Mourinho, uh, the madness of Mourinho. So, uh, what he thinks, uh, a Cylon, that is. He thinks Mourinho may have gone from, quote, the crazy ex-girlfriend to someone who found her, quote, true love. Uh, Now, setting aside the strange undertones of anti-feminism and possibly sending back women's rights by 30 years and perception of women, is this Cylon guy onto something here? Is he, is Mourinho turning a new leaf, or is this just the beginning, and we know Mourinho's second season, third season syndrome?
1: Could be one or the other. I mean, he... His acting as if this was his his goal, getting this job. That part of his antics in his second stint at Chelsea related to him not getting this job when it was offered to David Moyes instead in 2013. Uh, Three years later, three three and a half years later, he is in the job and behaving. Quite normally, uh, which is a, a radical departure, I think, from the other managers uh, near the top of the uh, near the top of the table. I mean, I don't think any other manager in England, with the exception of of, of a top club, with the exception of Claudio Ranieri, really behaves normally in, in press conferences. So that's uh, that's certainly an asset, a, a plus for Mourinho. But time will tell with him, as always.
2: Yeah, and and the caveat to that, from my opinion, is. His handling of uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger. I mean, there, there's one way to, one way to be ruthless and say a certain player doesn't fit your system, which is fair enough. Uh, but to make a player like Schweinsteiger play in the reserves uh, and basically just write him off completely is, uh, I think, uh, not the best way to deal with a player of his history within the game. Let's uh, let's talk about the uh, city's win over Stoke. Chris, we'll start with you again. Uh, 4-1 win away. It's uh, Stoke. It. Answers the age-old question, and you know something that uh, people have asked about for so long, and it's been such a great question, which is, can Guardiola do it on a windy night away at Stoke?
0: <laughs> well, it was at lunchtime, so <laughs> I think we've proved definitively not yet.
2: Um, <laughs> I, I actually thank you, think... thank you, Chris, for keeping on feeding that ridiculous, ridiculous question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think actually. What I came away from this was you see the benefits of, of what is his ethos come to the fore in the sense that from a position standpoint, they were very good. But also they they really smothered Stoke. Um, and I was watching the, the the players kind of react and you could see themselves, they'd look so overwhelmed every time the Stoke players got onto the ball because there was usually two or three attackers, and that ability to close the space on them so quickly was devastating. But then also I think what impressed me more was the the fluency between the front three, which for me is, is kind of typified by Nolito's second, where right. it's dummied into the path of Sterling. He then squares it to uh, Nolito to, to tap on. Of course, again, it's such a small sample size. You don't want to draw big, broad brushstroke conclusions. I think what you can say is there's been an improvement in the productivity of Raheem Sterling already,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: is, is a good sign. I think John Stones looks a better fit in this side than he did in Everton's. Um, um, and then the inclusion of Nalito, again, he's on that for me, I think, I think they bought him because he was essentially what Jesus Navas was supposed to be, a fast wide man that will score goals. Um, overall, though, I think it was a, a really solid showing from them. And and again, it's, it's not an easy place to go to. And of course, I think any defeat that Pep Guardiola suffers this season, assuming he does so, will be made out to be a giant hole in the side of the ship. Actually, I think it will come in time, of course. Mm-hmm. But the early performances have been very impressive.
2: Karthik, uh, we, we, I think we can skip the Aguero analysis because the analysis of Aguero is that he's probably the best striker in the Premier League when he's fit. He scored five goals this week, including two missed penalties, which is just a ridiculous you know, uh, rate of scoring. So, Aguero, terrific form right now. What I wanted to ask you about was cities. Uh, right now, they're continuing with this modified 4 3 3 formation. And I found the position of De Bruyne to be pretty interesting. He, he's not playing as the advanced, uh, one of the advanced uh, three forwards. He's kind of playing in that, in the three in midfield. So, how do you see uh, Kevin De Bruyne, a player that we saw have exceptional success in advanced areas, working in this formation?
1: Yeah, I, I think. Uh, it's a very fluid formation. We can't get hung up on, on formations numbers, with yeah. Pep Guardiola right we have to we have to look at the movement and the average position and as you and as you said De Bruyne is playing a little more withdrawn role I, I, I've noticed uh, in these last uh, uh, three matches well I guess those are the three competitive matches Manchester City's played how uh, far inside Raheem Sterling is playing and how well Sterling's playing I mean right. uh, it, it seems the uh, the English media no offense Chris but the uh, the British media's crusade against Sterling and uh, against uh, this player that uh, was conducted because he left Liverpool and then flopped for England over the Euros. It, seem, it seems to have uh, uh, not affected him. Uh, Pep Guardiola has clearly taken him aside and said, hey, I have a lot of faith in you. Uh, don't, don't read the papers. Don't read uh, the Twitters. And uh, he's playing phenomenally well. It, it, and then he's feeding off of uh, De Bruyne's movement because De Bruyne is drifting kind of end-to-end and, and, and sitting in a deeper position than he did last season under Manuel Pellegrini, where in that, uh, in, in that case, you, you saw a lot of bunching up on the pitch of, of De Bruyne uh, and uh, Yaya Torre when he was playing in a more I think quite clearly we've got a situation now where you've got a preferred 11 for Pep Guardiola all of whom understand their roles, or at least a preferred midfield and attack. Now, if that's, that might change when Gundawan is fit. Maybe that changes when Leroy Sané is fit, although I can't see either Nolito or um, Sterling coming out of this team anytime soon. So he, I think Pep has been able to work with the guys he had in camp early who were fit mm-hmm. and has really kind of created a fluid type setup with uh with the three midfielders and the three attackers that uh uh, looks very very good right now now there's still some issues at the back i think uh, john stones has played very well i'm not convinced by any of the other uh, players on the back line and the other three but uh, so far so good
2: chris uh, aside from the goalkeeping score with caballero a story with caballero uh, and Hart, who is probably now going to move on um and Claudia bravo coming in let's really quickly talk about stoke for a second. I thought they looked disjointed in midfield, which has been a criticism of Mark Hughes, who's front-loaded this team. Uh, I thought Joe Allen kind of struggled in this game, Whelan, Imbula, all of them struggled against Fernandinho. It was almost as though Fernandinho by himself was able to take on uh, that three central midfield in Stoke.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of the interesting evaluations drawn quite early on. Fernandinho was essentially going to play the Jabby Alonso role um, in comparison to, to the situation of Bayern Munich. For me, the Stoke midfield is is a very curious situation because I remember when they um, signed Joe Allen from, from Liverpool. It was heralded as of quite a really good signing. And actually, I think I said on, on the pod, it was definitely an upgrade on Glenn Whelan. Hmm. I think the drawback with having Joe Allen is, at least if we take the last few years at Liverpool, there wasn't really enough goals and assists in there. And I saw that criticism. I think it was levelled at him by Graham Souness over the weekend and I'm not usually one for agreeing with Graham Sooners, but on this instance, I think I'm going to have to because actually that is an important element of of the game that Alan needs when he's sitting next to someone like Gianni and Bula. Um, He himself is is not known for being a a goal scorer or someone that contributes in those statistic columns. So kind of one of them has to be, otherwise there's very little need to play the two of them unless you want to give really kind of huge creative freedom and, and, a lack of defensive responsibility to the likes of Arnautovic and Bojan, which in a Mark Hughes side, I can't imagine he'll want to do. I think if anything, he'll want a compact unit, which uh, then again kind of negates the need for, for both of those two in midfield.
2: Hmm. Gentlemen, before we continue, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor SeedGeek. We have some really exciting news to share about our sponsor SeatGeek, which is that SeatGeek is now the official ticketing partner of Major League Soccer. SeatGeek is working with the league and its teams to introduce a new ticket buying experience that will make it easier for you to buy, sell, share, and access tickets to MLS matches. Tonight, the Counting Crows are playing here in Indianapolis, along with Rob Thomas, formerly of Matchbox Twenty. And the first place I looked to snag tickets was SeatGeek, because I knew the, that those other sites would mean exorbitant tickets, uh, t- exorbitant fees at checkout. Additionally, SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work, and you save time and money. Best of all, our World Soccer Talk listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, Step 1. Download the SeatGeek app. Step 2. Go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Step 3. Enter promo code WSTPod. And step four, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Karthik, let's talk about Tottenham's 1-0 win over Crystal Palace. Uh, one of the things I noticed in this game that I found interesting uh, was Jansen and Kane started together. Kane was actually the one playing a little bit of a withdrawn role. And uh, based on what we saw last season where we saw Dele Ali kind of playing behind Kane, Kane the furthest forward... I found this uh, new style of formation pretty interesting because last season, one of the things I did notice about Kane was that he is able to hold the ball well and play through the likes of Eriksson and players running uh, ahead of him. So I think it's a very interesting thing that, that Pochettino is trying here.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it conforms to their squad numbers, right? Kane pl- is wearing number 10 and Jansen number 9, and it's very rare in modern football you see it actually work out that way. But uh, Kane, Kane was playing a number 10 role. A lot of the play was coming through him. He was shielding the ball well, holding the ball well, serving very much as kind of a foil for Jansen. It was an interesting uh, setup, and, and in the end, they uh, they were able to prevail. But uh, I I think... What you're seeing from Pochettino is because they're in Champions League this year and we saw the toll that Europa League at times took on them last season and they ran out of gas. That's what happened the last uh, four four games of the season. uh, Pochettino uh, demands a lot of intensity out of his players. They press high. They uh, are a a team that does a lot of running, a very, uh, very open, exciting brand of football. But uh, I, I think he is trying to rotate his squad and give enough different looks with what is still a thinner squad mm-hmm. than the other top teams. But to me, a squad that uh, I think from a chemistry standpoint, from a squad cohesion standpoint, is probably better than the other top teams, which is why I think Spurs can win the title this season. And, uh, I seem to be the only one who thinks that. The only one who <laughs> got out on the limb and said that. But I, I think Pochettino is very much kind, kind of rotating guys in. And I have to say, uh, I'm pleased with what I've seen through two matches. They've got four points. Uh, they're not getting off to the slow season, which ultimately uh, forced them to have to try and chase down Leicester. And uh, I think that they're pretty well positioned. And, and uh, sure, they they only won 1-0 against a, a weak Palace side, but uh, they'll take the three points and, and they're going to continue to get stronger as uh, August turns to September and September turns to October. I, I really like what I see from Pochettino's side.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think uh, even though the scoreline was just one nothing from a one-yama header, uh, Von Yama goal. I, I think overall Tottenham was better. They produced some really good, incisive, one touch football in the final third, which should have led to goals for both strikers. Uh, Jansen missed a chance, uh, Kane missed a, another really good chance. He struck the ball actually really well, but it just happened to go past the post. Uh, so I liked what I saw in the Kane, Jansen Lamella, and Eriksen uh, those top, those front four right there. Uh, Chris, really, Am i the quickly, only
0: one who's slightly worried about Jansen just slightly. Go on, tell us why. And, and I base this again. I feel like I have to preface almost every point at this, at this stage with it is a small sample size. We're only two mm-hmm. games in. The chances that Jansen has missed so far, the one against Everton where it's palmed away by Stickallenberg is a great save. Then also the one against Palace. So often for me, at least goal scoring and goal scorers, it's about momentum. It's about getting that first goal, that early goal and building from there. And the fact that he's kind of, fluffing for want of a better word Mm -hmm. those early chances I just have a nasty feeling it could develop a really negative momentum for him and could make it difficult to, to establish himself in that first season
2: Huh yeah I mean I can I can see what you're saying but at the same time as you said it's a small sample size sometimes strikers take a little bit of time to get settled in a right. new league uh and I think I think it comes down to Pochettino doesn't it in the sense that if Pochettino uh consider if Pochettino is very cutthroat then Jansen might be in trouble but I think Pochettino has shown a proclivity at least last season to allow players to make mistakes to get better I think no better example than Harry Kane who who kind of struggled uh, for, for little bits of last season. And, and Pochettino, while other managers would have taken him out, uh, Harry Kane was given the chance to get back into form. So hopefully he does yeah, the same with the answer.
0: I, I agree with that. I think,
2: mm-hmm. again, the, the
0: one thing that sort of like tweaked my, my you know, spidey senses, I guess, was watching the, I don't know if you'd call it a one-on-one, but he had a chance essentially where he was just him and the goalkeeper and a few mm-hmm. defenders chasing and he sort of lifted it, but then he kind of side-footed it. It was a very weird attempt at goal. And I kind of watched it back on the replay and thought, what are you trying to do there? Are you trying to bend it round? Are you trying to just lift it up? And it was that indecision. I think that's perhaps going to be one of the biggest stumbling blocks for in this season is adjusting to the the pressure as well as the pace. Mm-hmm. Because we talk about how much quicker England is. I think the pressure in terms of the lack of time to take a chance is is something he's going to have to to maybe work through. But it would be something to watch, I think, at least, if nothing else.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely good thought there. Karthik, let's talk about another striker uh, who joined Palace. I mean, he, he didn't know he signed Palace. He thought he signed Burnley uh, in Christian Benteke. Uh, I, that that was a funny little moment uh, with Palace. But let's talk really quickly about Johan Kabaya. I don't know why he's on the bench.
1: Yeah, I don't either. I, I'm not quite sure what Paul is doing. What uh, let the... um long-term setup is for this team. I mean, it just seems... I mean, Chris can probably get better insight on this. It just seems very party-esque uh, where he doesn't have any consistent uh, thought process or consistent uh, tactical setup. I, I, um, I, I'm i really worried about Palace. So I have to say, I mean, the Venteke signing should help them, and obviously they paid a, a great deal of money for him, uh, but... I I just don't see anything in this squad that makes me think they're going to avoid a relegation fight this season. And knowing that they have a manager whose team's going these great swings, it uh, it, it really is quite worrying because I'm not... I'm, not, I'm just not seeing the consistency in squad selection, the consistency in tactics, the uh, understanding between players now who have been together for a number of seasons in most cases that you would like to see at this point. I mean, I thought perhaps because um, there is a core, an inherited core, plus you add Andros Townsend to that core uh, in, in this summer, that you were going to see them come out of the gates pretty strong and then try and hang on like they did last season. Instead, uh, they've looked, uh, from, from my vantage point, they've looked maybe the worst side in the entire division to this point.
2: Yeah, I think I agree. I think Hennessy is probably their the saving grace. He, he made a couple of crucial saves uh, in this game. But yeah, they, they've definitely struggled to create anything. So, um, but as you said, maybe maybe, by, maybe signing a striker who can put away goals uh, based on two seasons ago, not last season, uh, might be the, what they've, they've been missing for over a season now in Crystal Palace. Chris, let's talk about the Arsenal nil nil draw against Leicester City. This is a game I was looking forward to, uh, all week. Um, it was a pretty even first half. I thought it, overall though, Leicester City threatened more uh, on the counter attack. They might have Obviously as as was true last season, they didn't keep much of the ball, but they were far more threatening on the break. But for some reason, even though Mares was trying to play those passes he played successfully last season, even though Vardy was making those runs, they that connection wasn't there again. That that final ball was missing. And that is what's somewhat troubling, isn't it, for Lester?
0: It is, but then I think we we almost expected that to a degree. Yeah. The fluency they had, but then also, and I think we've talked about this previously, the fact that teams really did come on to Leicester last season that helped. It's mm. it's so much easier to find right. a, a pass like that when you've got the space to do it. Whereas, as we saw with Hull last week, when you're trying to break down a team, that's a lot more difficult. And I think Morris is a very talented technician. I think he's
2: good at dribbling. I don't know if he has the can break. You, can you say season. technician the way Brendan Rodgers would say his technician? i'm not gonna try um the only brendan
0: rogers what i can do is supporters, and even that's sketchy at best try it Um, i want to hear
2: it hang on i want to hear it
0: supporters (laughs) um I i think that he is a very good technician i don't know if he has the the breakaway speed though and and again he's not the biggest obviously as we've talked about and and just in general i think that's something that I didn't see Leicester doing enough against Arsenal was that sort of blindside run that Jamie Vardy liked to do right. last year. So it's it's going to be a period of adjustment for them tactically, I think, this season, because they're going to have to try and develop right. new methods. It's interesting, I think, that they've brought Ahmed Musa because he does offer a lot of similar things. And I think, in fairness, if they get that penalty, maybe right. we're not having a lot of the discussions we are now. And we're saying that, look, actually, a lot of their methods still work because... The the running behind the use of pace like that it generates a penalty. I still would like to see a little bit of versatility with Leicester though. At the minute, for me, they're bordering on being a little bit of a one trick pony in terms of the way they attack teams.
2: Karthik, I think uh, Chris led me to exactly what I wanted to ask you. Last week, whole City's win against Leicester City was discussed ad infinitum in the in the league about how it you know defied uh, you know Leicester City's season and and. Basically, was a sign of the downfall, etc. And I thought that it was they were very unlucky last week. I thought had a few chances gone in, had a couple of things fall into place, they would have won that game comfortably, even though they lost two nothing. Same this week. I thought had they got that penalty that Chris hints at, had uh, Mendy maybe not got injured, had a couple of things fall into place, they would have won this game. And I thought they were better than Arsenal. So how how do you contextualize this Leicester play- performance?
1: Oh, they were the better team. No question. But i I wonder now if uh, this is when we see the return of Tinkerman, because oh, right. it seems like there's been they're continuing to try and play the way they did last season. There have been some, some little wrinkles, but Albrighton was back this week. That was that was pretty important for them. Uh, I don't think Damari Gray quite gave them. Although he did draw the penalty right last week, uh, which has led to their one goal of the season. I don't think he quite gave them what Albrighton gave them as a two-way player. And you saw those let-offs defensively. You, you saw the return of Albrighton this week. You saw the. Um, by the way, Albrighton played in all thirty-eight games last season. He's not going to play in all thirty-eight games this season right. because he missed the first game. And and, and then I thought. You saw more kind of compactness and resourcefulness when the other team had the ball. When Arsenal had the ball, uh, but again they didn't get the result. Uh, yes, that was a that was a blown call, and and um, they get they get penalties that way. So much of their success last year was drawing set pieces. For, they had all these spectacular goals in open play, right, from Mahrez and Vardy, but so much of their success was based around drawing penalties and drawing fouls because of their pace, getting behind, and particularly Marez and Vardy, and now you add Ahmed Musa to that equation. So, perhaps they are okay, because when you think about uh, Damari Gray, he drew a penalty in the first game. Musa should have drawn one in the second game. Vardy and Mares, with their movement, with their pace, and, and really with the kind of dribbling ability that Mares has, is always going to draw a couple penalties a season. So, um, especially with the kind of shambolic state of central defending in, in the Premier League, and maybe we, we'll get to that point when we talk about Arsenal, uh, <laughs> that... that um, i i think uh i think they're gonna be okay it's just a little bit disheartening they haven't gotten these results uh but look these this is the uh, two of their three losses last now and now they've gotten the draw so in, in a sense they uh this is a, a point earned a point picked up over last season's pace
2: that's true that's true i guess yeah that's true arsenal was the only team to do the double over leicester weren't they chris let's talk about arsenal now briefly uh I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Arsenal right now. Uh, Last week, obviously, they hemorrhaged chances, hemorrhaged goals against Liverpool. There's a, uh, beyond the stuff on the pitch, there's just a level of toxicity at that club right now that is difficult to contextualize. Uh, Because, I mean, we already saw some signs of Wenger out. That's, That's been going on for about four or five seasons. But what I found even more troubling was that even in the 25th, 30th minute, uh, when things weren't going their way, there were groans and 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 uh, and noise from the stadium that just suggested there's no belief in the manager or the team?
0: I, I think for a good portion, if not the majority, there is no belief. There's a frustration as well. And I think it, it manifests in a lot of different ways. It's, it's the fact that they're not spending compared to their rivals. Um, I think also it's the fact that they themselves, the fans, are actually spending and investing in the club. Right. and I, I think More so than any other team in the league. Mm, and I, I think that's the frustration, is they're questioning where that investment's going. Now, I personally have, have had a few chats with uh, Lawrence about this and the notion of actually just throwing money at the problem. I don't know if that's the issue. I think the more pressing issue is, can we honestly say Arsene Wenger is using the players at his disposal to the best of their abilities, at least from a tactical perspective, because look, they they just went to the team that won the league last year mm-hmm. with arguably a squad that had deficiencies with a squad that was not perfect, was not that balanced. And and that's the the bigger question for me is not why isn't he spending money? Because, again, I think even he's getting frustrated with that question now. It's actually why hasn't he addressed issues or why hasn't he found a balance in the squad during the last six to seven, maybe even eight years? Um, yes, they've won the FA Cup. I think that's impressive and he deserves credit for that. It doesn't have the sustained performance of a league title, though. That's my concern with it. It's very much win, you know, maybe once a month. And you're often at a lower league team and then get yourself to, to Wembley and, and you're on for potentially a, a cup. I, I just think every time I, I look at the Arsenal situation, I come away feeling like it's watching a friend's relationship that probably should have ended maybe a year or two prior. And, and that might sound like a, a slightly flippant comment, but what I mean by that is there's maybe just not effort on either side anymore. The, the, the love that was once there, the appreciation that was once there has massively deteriorated amongst Arsenal fans. Um, and I, I'm even seeing some, and this is via Arsenal fan TV, which in fairness is, feels a little bit like social bear baiting with the fans at <laughs> times. Um, some of them saying, you know, this team wasn't founded in 96 when he came in, which I think is a, a slap at those who say he was an innovator and, and raised the club. And it's a fair point. You know, they had a history before him. They'll have a history after him. I just think that, yeah, someone maybe higher up, be it Usmanov or whomever, should have taken a decision sooner than this and not allowed the situation to to reach the point where you're just waiting for the car to stop rather than actually pulling it off the road.
1: Yeah, now, now he's getting very defensive with reporters uh, yesterday after the game saying, well, if Rob Holding had cost 55 million pounds, you'd be raving about him. <laughs> I, and and I mean, I respect Wenger's... Uh, willingness to to buy young English players. He's done done this several times now in the last few years. as clearly a cost-cutting or money-saving measure. Holding's a player that uh, has played one full season in the championship. Not even a full season, really about a half a season with Bolton. Uh, But it's a good, young English center half. Uh, But in buying Holding, that's given uh, Wenger an excuse not to go and engage in the market and and try and get the kind of players that um, the other sides in, in England are chasing. So uh, he, he's getting defensive about that sort of stuff. He's making uh, the kind of snarky remarks that he was known to make snarky quips once once uh, in a while, but not as consistently as he has he is now. And um, I agree with Chris. I think there's just a, a breakdown in trust, breakdown in the relationship. Uh, it, this is this just seems destined to end badly, doesn't it?
2: It does. Basically, what you just learned, listener, is that Arsenal is Rachel and Arsene Wenger is Ross. When we come back for well, no, section... They, they end up together,
0: should we? Well, oh, that's
2: right, because Phoebe says he's her lobster. So who, who's Phoebe in this equation? I don't know. Maybe someone who supports Wenger. I general, think
0: what, I, what yeah. I would just chip in with relative to the Rob Holding thing is, actually, if you look at that kind of signing, that's the kind of signing that big clubs make hmm. and then send out on loan. It's it's really not someone that maybe Bar. Actually, no, not even at that level it's not someone that comes in and starts instantly like that. It's very rare. Deli Ali is perhaps a, a very unique unicorn type case. Mm-hmm. But I think saying, you know, Rob Holding, sorry, didn't cost. I think, again, that highlights the the sort of dynamic that is now present between uh, Wenger and the fans. Because actually, I think journalists are serving as a little bit of a conduit for the fans' frustrations and, mm-hmm. and asking the questions that they themselves have or the, the feelings that they
2: have. Gentlemen, when we come back for section two, we'll talk about another three games and update you on the leagues around Europe. Section two, let's start with the fact, Chris, that whole city is unbeaten. Six points out of six, we all predict, everyone predicted them to finish dead last, uh, they have almost they, they don't even have a full squad uh they're playing with basically the same set of players uh, last week when they beat whole city uh leicester city i felt it was a very steve bruce esque performance this week they produced some good interesting quality football on the break um so tell me what what is going on with whole city i think
0: they are kind of benefiting from the really tapered squad they have um i think It was interesting as well to hear uh, Mike Phelan talk afterwards about the game plan that they tried to enact. Now, it's it's nothing groundbreaking. It's actually quite a traditional away game performance in the sense he said, I wanted to keep it tight for 75 minutes, conserve energy because we don't have that depth on the bench, and then see if we could maybe push forward and put a bit of pressure on and nick something. And four minutes after that 75-minute mark, they find the goal. And again, as you touched on there in the question, the counterattack comes not long after. So I think what it is, it's it's very good game management from, from him specifically. It's also, I think, a, a very strongly bonded squad who have taken the adversity that very easily, I think, could be used as an excuse and actually taken strength from it. And I think that for me will be the thing to watch with Hull now moving forward is to see who they bring in. Because at the time of recording, we've got around, I think, 12 days until this window is shut. Mm-hmm. Teams are going to know Hull are coming to to try and fill up a squad. They know their situation, which makes, I think an even harder negotiation point. And that's even assuming that the owners are willing to facilitate okay. that because they haven't seemed that willing to do so. I mean, they signed an 18 year old on a one year deal, I think last week. Again, I think with all due respect to him, the fact I can't recall his name says a lot about <laughs> what he's likely to contribute this season. I do feel a bit sorry for Hull though, because I don't think any fans deserve this. And, I think if they can continue taking the the sort of feelings or the efforts that they've taken into the first two games, then good luck to them. Because I think everyone, self-included, was was writing them off before we'd even kicked the ball.
2: Yeah, I thought that link up between, especially between Hernandez and Snotgrass was uh, basically the, the driving, the counter-attacking point uh, that Holt produced, uh, mm. especially... Using Hernandez as, as the target man and having Snortgrass run past him, it worked really, really well. Karthik, uh, I think the, the yeah, good go thing ahead.
0: is as well, just to interject side on Hernandez, is we see this a fair few times. When a team signs maybe a foreign player or, mm-hmm. or whatever goes down and then comes back up, and it's, it's happened a little bit with Gaston Ramirez, albeit over right. a slightly longer period, they do adjust in the second tier. They kind of get the, the nuances of English football. In the championship. And then when they come up, they understand things a bit better. They're a bit more accustomed to it. And it does produce kind of much better results than than in their first season.
2: Karthik, just like
0: I think that's what happened.
2: Yeah. Gets the English game. Yeah. Karthik, just like last week, I I thought Hull City were a little lucky here. I thought Swansea played somewhat pretty well. They they had well over 20 shots. Uh, Unfortunately... Even though they have signed Lorente, and we all know they've let go of three strikers, the problem was that off of those 20 to 23 shots, something like that, only three were on target. Meanwhile, Hull, with just 10 to 12 shots, ended up with four on target. And and in some ways, it shows some of the issues. In, in that statistic, I think we underline some of the issues at Swansea.
1: Yeah, and I think there's there's a lack of chemistry we're seeing or lack of understanding between Llorente and... At times, and and Mo and, and, and Sigurdsson and, and the guys who were playing uh, in, in kind of midfield roles or attacking roles uh, alongside Llorente. So that's that will come with time. I, I haven't uh, I haven't been terribly concerned by how Swansea's played. I mean, they they haven't been getting the results these first two matches uh, the the optimum results, but I'm not that concerned about them. I think what we saw with uh, this match was really uh, some poor finishing. Uh, some some uh uh you know mistimed balls at, at, in the final third right you know right. build up good build up play good possession play which we expect from swansea especially given hull's uh situation and what mike, mike phelan said about conserving their energy for 75 minutes and then just that final ball was lacking or that final idea wasn't there i, I think uh, uh, as far as mike phelan's concerned uh Perhaps David Moyes now, looking back, he, he let Mike Phelan go. He let uh, Renee Mielenstein go. That was the big uh, shock, I think, to Sir Alex Ferguson when he came in and he brought his staff with him from Everton, that um, maybe he never acclimated to the Manchester United culture. We're seeing the, the job Mike Phelan can do even in a, a really, really difficult circumstance. I mean, about as difficult a circumstance as you can have in tough like, football as a manager. So... Uh just think about that. Manchester United and, and the beginning of the decline started when uh Moyes ran off uh Phelan and, and Muhlenstein to uh trusted Sir Alex's assistance.
2: Yep, that's a very good point. Uh Chris, let's talk about Chelsea's two one win against Watford. Uh I thought Watford started the game much stronger, with we'll probably edged the game for a good 40 to 45 minutes. Uh, the wingbacks were heavily involved in the game. Uh, I thought they produced uh, some good width for Watford. Somehow Watford didn't score in the first half, though, and then Kapui uh, comes in with the goal. Eventually it comes to Costa scoring a late winner, which was a really, really good goal. But from a Chelsea perspective, Chris, um, I have to wonder... How do you how do you see this Fabregas situation playing out? Once Fabregas came on, he he changed the game for Chelsea. But it seems like in Antonio's Conte Antonio Conte's system, Fabregas might be the odd man out.
1: Mm,
0: I think he realistically he would develop into a closer if he stayed. I think mm-hmm. someone that comes in and, and benefits from the game, maybe stretching itself a bit, opening spaces up, because he is, for all of people's kind of slants against him, he's a brilliant passer of the ball. Yep. um i remember we, kevin we keegan saying, in this
2: game even yeah
0: yeah i remember kevin keegan saying years ago he's got a foot like a set of golf clubs and, and i think that's a brilliant way to put it because he can really vary his passing up and and that was typified by the game against watford as you say though the, the defensive frailties he has i think his lack of mobility those are things that are never going to help you find a spot in a content midfield and given that he's on, I think he's on the most wages, if I remember right, someone closer to the club than, than myself was saying he is the highest paid player at the club. Mm. That's not really something you can invest in what is going to be a substitute. You need to have that person starting. You then start looking in a similar way that we did with, with Wayne Rooney when he was linked away as saying, well, who wants to buy him then? Maybe PSG, but that's, again, that's kind of really formulating a, a transfer that hasn't really even looked like being there. Real Madrid had been linked to him. I can't see him wanting to cross that divide. Personally, being a, a Barcelona boy, the options are short and, and not yeah. kind of coming to the fore. So China, he kind of stuck with him, really. I, yeah, again, he, I'm not even sure if he would want to go to China because yeah, he's not.
2: That was just tongue in cheek. I don't think he. No, I think. No, I, think
0: at this point. Realist, I think it's a fair shout out, given given the state of play at the minute and the kind of guys who who are going over there. I mean, he is 29. He's not the youngest, um, yeah. and you would have to think. physical aspect of his game which has never been actually that prevalent anyway he's never really been I would say someone who's benefited from his athleticism or anything like that that's only going to diminish as he gets older so he has to find a a kind of spot that fills him the fact that it didn't work for Barcelona already or work at Barcelona sorry that pains the idea to me that he's not going there anytime soon and you would argue someone whose main asset is passing is is kind of tailor-made to a team like that but it didn't work for him for you know, for a variety of reasons. So it's it's a concern. I'd be a little bit worried if I was Fabregas because it doesn't look like there's many ports to, to kind of rest the ship into.
1: He he either takes a step down to a hmm. club like a West Ham or a Crystal Palace, that level club, or even a Valencia or a Sevilla. Well, I can't imagine that. Or he becomes a 15 to 20 minute player at Chelsea. The kind of intensity and running and pace that Antonio Conte demands, and this this just maybe a mismatch of manager and player, Fabregas can't provide that. He, he just can't. Mm. And it's it was something I thought of instantly when Conte was hired uh, before the end of last season was, how how is he going to adjust to Ces Fabregas? That's probably the end of Cesc Fabregas. But as Chris correctly points out, and I haven't thought about this before, when matches are stretched, Late on in games, because my thought process was Fabregas isn't going to play a role at all under Conte. Just knowing the style of football Conte demands. And, and it's, it's true, he's not going to start. He's not going to be in that midfield, uh, except in maybe against uh, some weaker sides. When games are stretched, and there's more space, and you have more time on the ball, Fabregas is a perfect closer in a game. I, I completely agree with that. And then you can also play Fabregas in some situations where you're playing a team that's going to back off and is not going to press you and is going to sit very deep. You could start him in those games. So against a, a Hull, for instance, against teams like that, but against a, a top top 10 sides, top half sides in the Premier League, I, I would be surprised if he starts a single game this season, honestly.
2: A player that Chelsea will not be signing now is Romeo, Romeo Lukaku, whose Everton team beat... West Brom 2-1 coming from, from behind. Uh, Everton also signed Yannick Balassi earlier this week from Crystal Palace, and he was involved in this game as well. Uh, the game was largely unremarkable uh, in terms of the quality of the game, mostly because of West Brom. Uh, but I have to say that, Karthik, I'll start with you on this. Uh, I think one of the issues Everton is going to have uh, is figuring out that three-man backline. And having bought Ashley Williams... I think that will help solidify the three-man backline because even in spite of the fact that they were playing West Brom, there were a few chances that West Brom themselves created, including the McCauley uh, set-piece goal.
1: Yeah, I think it's a process very much for Ron Koeman in this. Uh, I guess you would call the three-four-three formation. It's a. Uh, it's going to take some time. I think Ashley Williams is the perfect anchor for that back uh, back three. They have now. Uh, begun to reinvest the money they got for John Stones, which, by the way, uh, again, we're only three games in, but John Stones looked like a pretty good buy for Manchester City. Maybe it's uh, the difference between playing for Martinez and playing for Guardiola. I mean, that might just explain it, or or it's such a small sample size and, and he's going to hit hit the skids like he did last season soon. But he looks like a completely different player with Manchester City than he did with Everton a year ago. I, um, I think this is a team... That is very, very dangerous if they keep this core together. They've added Balassi. If they keep Lukaku, Morales looks like he's getting back to the level which he hasn't been at in about a year and a half or so. Uh, That's why he was dropped from the Belgian team for the Euros. If they continue this upswing, I kind of like how Delafeo has been used. If they continue this upswing, I think this is a team that if an Arsenal drops off, or if a Liverpool doesn't uh, do quite what some folks expect, could really push and sneak for the sneak into the top four. Believe it or not, I know that's a that's a big shout, but I, I really like the way Everton's coming together and what Kooman is trying to do. And now he's got the ability to buy um, on a on a bigger budget than he did at Southampton and not have to sell off consistently. I, I think this is going to be a, a good club going forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's, that's absurd to assume that ever, uh, to, to predict that Everton might sneak into the top four. They've produced arguably the best, the most attractive attacking football in the first two games of the season for, of of any team in the league. Uh, Some of their passing has been crisp. Uh, The 3-4-3 allows them to build those, those, those cliched triangles all over the pitch. Um, had a really good first goal. And if you haven't had had a chance, you should watch that goal because the build-up play to that goal is absolutely terrific. Uh, so your point is well taken. Uh, before we get to uh, the third section, I want to update our listeners on the other leagues around Europe. Uh, so in La Liga, with a few games yet to go at the time of recording, uh, Luis Suarez hat-trick propelled Barcelona to a 6-2 win against Real Betis. That makes it, makes it Suarez's fourth hat-trick in his last seven La Liga games. It's pretty good. Meanwhile, in the game of the season so far, Sevilla beat Espanyol 6-4, uh, at one point the score was leveled at 3-3 before Jorge Sampaoli's team turned on the style and secured all three points. In Serie A, Roma beat Odinese comfortably by four goals after goals by Diego Perotti, Dzeko and Mosala, while Juventus beat Fiorentina 2-1. Although the score was narrow, Juventus created many chances but it took debutant Gonzalo Higuain to win the game for the old lady. Meanwhile, AC Milan narrowly beat Torino, catapulted by a hat trick by Colombian striker Carlos Paca. Finally, in league, uh, Toulouse thrashed rivals Bordeaux. Pascal Dupraz's men, who narrowly escaped relegation last season, took apart Bordeaux to continue a run of seven unbeaten at home against their fierce rivals, uh, with wing with the winger Martin Braithwaite having a man of the match performance. When we come back. We will wrap up the final few games that we haven't covered as well as give you some transfer news and that will be the end of tonight's podcast. So stay tuned for section three of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Final section of today's World Soccer Talk podcast. Going to start with transfer news, Chris and Karthik. I'm going to read out a few transfers. This isn't an exhaustive list, but... Uh, this is most of the players that were transferred last week that we haven't talked about, so obviously not including Benteke, et cetera. Um, so the the players that I, uh, I'm I going to read out here, Joel Campbell on loan to Sporting, James Wilson on loan to Derby County, Robert uh, Robert Pereira, Juve to Watford, Eunice Kabul, Sunderland to Watford, Steven Pinar Sunderland on a free, and Fabio De Silva, Cardiff to Middlesbrough. Chris, what, which one of these signings do you see having the biggest impact?
0: I think it will be Robert Pereira to to Watford. Um, he was he was very exciting at Udinese. I just don't think it clicked for him at Juventus. He wasn't great in his last season. I think he needs a little bit of a confidence boost. I also get the feeling that England as a league may be a better fit for him and his talents. Um, I, th- I think it, it just works for attacking players in general, the, the Premier League, when you when you do come there. Um but I think of of that group, that's the one that'll have the most. I think Joel Campbell will likely provide the most frustration because I think he'll score goals in in the Portuguese league, which will no doubt cause a, an amount of ire amongst Arsenal fans
2: as a consequence. Oh, that'll be fun to watch—just the ire from Arsenal fans, not not Joel Campbell. Karthik, what about you?
1: I'm not really sure about uh, these. I, I would have said Pereira also. I think that that's that's an impact signing that is going to help Watford. It's going to give Matsari some other options and other tactical options. Uh, Maybe uh, getting Eunice Kabul. That's an experienced central defender, Mm -hmm. a guy that can play uh, in a kind of a leadership role. I have to say I'm very concerned about Watford uh, based on Kapu getting injured. I think he's far and away their best player, far and away their most important player. He got hurt. uh, We didn't mention it in the Chelsea game. I certainly hope he's okay. Otherwise, uh, Matsari might have to go shopping for a central midfielder in the next 10 days, nine days, however much as long in the window.
2: Mm -hmm. From my perspective, Fabio De Silva from Cardiff to Middlesbrough is, is an interesting one. Uh, I think he will have an impact. He he can play on both the left side as well as the right side of defense. So there's some flexibility there. He was a crowd favorite at Cardiff, uh, did terrifically well, scored three or four goals for them, uh, from the deep lying areas. He's a very good crosser at the ball, is, is actually a leader, uh, in some ways. Definitely was highly rated. He was the higher rated of the two Da Silva twins between Fabio and Rafael. Uh, so it'll be good to see him back in the Premier League. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do at Cardiff. Chris, let's start, uh, with the Burnley versus Liverpool game. Burnley somehow beating Liverpool. Actually, let's not say somehow because they deserve to win this game. Liverpool dominated possession. But Burnley winning two nothing scored a couple of goals on the break. This is what I want to I want to start the conversation with with Liverpool. I cannot understand. So okay, before I ask the question, an observation I made was that from the 25th, twenty fifth thirtieth minute on, Liverpool just peppered shots from outside the box, and you can understand. Felipe Coutinho doing it because he scores from that, from the left side of, uh, of Liverpool's midfield, playing that, uh, shooting with his right foot, bending the ball into the far corner. We've seen that. But when you see gruwich when you see, um, um, who am I forgetting? Henderson, when you see, uh, Firmino, when you see Klein taking pop shots from 40, 30 to 40 yards out, you have to ask the question, was that a tactical instruction from, uh, from Klopp? And if it was, why are they taking shots from 40 yards out? I sense it was a consequence of
0: Burnley's play and their ability to stay compact. Mm. Um, around 2014, there was a, an interview with Dario Gradi, who's kind of the, the head honcho behind Crew. Um, and he talked about that at a youth academy level, the most important thing to they were teaching players at the time was the ability to be very good, one on ones, and commit players. I think that's what was missing for, for Liverpool against Burnley, was the <clears throat> an ability to commit players in a 1v1 situation. Coutinho can do it. I don't think the likes of Henderson can do it. Gruwich can do it. And it meant that <clears throat> they couldn't really engineer spaces. They had to try and find them with passes and slick interchanges. And that is really difficult to do in the kind of space that Burnley was giving up, which was minimal at best. And in general, Jordan Henderson was actually really poor. Is His distribution, just his general play, there was not a lot to write home about from his perspective. And I think this is why, as the season progresses, we will see that um, Sadio Mane is is going to be very influential in terms of how uh, Liverpool do this season. And I think him being absent is, is kind of telling for that.
2: Yeah, definitely a game changer there. Karthik, what I saw from Liverpool solidified what I thought about Liverpool last week. After the game last week, Liverpool fans were talking about you know them being this terrific attacking team, etc. But what I said last week that I thought Liverpool had won based on some good individual talent and not much from a tactical perspective. And what I saw against Burnley... Kind of solidified that for me. I didn't think they had great, some good ideas in the final third. I didn't think they looked compact in midfield defensively. On the counter attack, they were opened on three or four occasions by Burnley. So some troubling, troubling signs for Klopp and Liverpool.
1: Right, and bad giveaways in midfield. Right, Mm -hmm, that's what led to both goals. And. That's not acceptable. I think defensively they were very poor. Their shape was terrible most of the game. Now, granted, they they had the ball most of the game. So as a defender, is particularly the way Klopp wants his his line to push forward, you're out of position often, and then you've got guys like Volks and Gray running. Uh, running the channels on counterattacks and and they're both very good at this. This is uh, uh, something we've we've seen from Burnley before. We saw it in the championship last year those two guys. And we saw it from, we've seen it from Vokes from years uh, playing with Danny Ings prior to that who's another very kind of quick uh, good counterattacking player. I, I uh, I'm very concerned about Liverpool. This is why I, I had them so low in my my table. I think that they they are a team that can win one-on-one matchups, guys who take on Uh, defenders like Mane, like Coutinho, and score goals that way. But the actual team play, if they're playing against a side that's well-organized and able to uh, absorb pressure, isn't there. And this is why Liverpool dropped so many points to teams in the bottom half last season. That's why, once again, they went to the Emirates and beat Arsenal, because Arsenal is, gonna, is not going to play that uh, that compactly. They're not going to be that organized at the back. They were starting Rob Holding, uh, who was in the championship last year, and Callum Chambers, who's really kind of not uh, a natural central defender as there are two central defenders. That's why Liverpool were able to go to the Emirates and win. But against the Burnleys of the world, and the whole cities of the world, and, and the sides that you expect to be further down the table, they are going to have a hard time winning games, particularly away from home, and, and this this game just reinforced all my preseason concerns about Liverpool, and uh, my opinion of the team hasn't changed at all. This is kind of what I expected.
2: Chris Karthik provides a really good point. That is my next question. He he points out that Liverpool have have a good record against the the, the teams they they're supposed to be underdogs against against the quote unquote bigger teams. They did all of last season on, uh, well, what not all for the second half of last season under Klopp, but they struggle against the smaller teams. They give up chances and goals against the smaller teams. Now we've th- that that we've seen that historically with some teams. But what I want to ask you is a, a manager like Klopp and and the players at Liverpool. At some point they have to. How do you how do you how do you handle that as a player or a manager? Do you accept that that's an issue at the club, or do you just? basically dismiss it saying that's just a that's just an anomaly it'll fix him, fix itself because it is something that that sort of lazy analysis we can provide which is they're good against the big teams poor against the small smaller teams keeps on coming up doesn't it
0: well as someone that's never been a player nor a manager allow him <laughs> to speak with authority um <laughs> i think Give me what the I answer. I believe in this was question. actually a problem for <laughs> I'd say this was also a problem for Klopp at Dortmund, especially towards the end, was that teams, for the most part, wanted to give them the ball and realised that the worst thing you could do was attack a Dortmund side, and and that's when they would exploit the spaces. And it goes back to what we were saying about Leicester and the idea that actually it's so much easier to play on the counter-attack because usually there's so much more space to play in. I think what they have to do realistically, and again, it goes back to that Leicester point, is they have to develop more styles of play. At the minute... As you rightly said, against teams they are perceived as underdogs against, they're gonna be able to find spots. They're able they're gonna be able to pick their shots. But you can't just counter puncher all the time. You have to be able to take the file to the opposition. And against the teams that actually reverse that and sit off themselves, I think Liverpool will constantly struggle. You go back to, to last season at St James's Park, that was essentially what happened was they were picked off on the counter-attack, and, and they signed Alden. I would argue, off the back of that, and the irony is is that when you look at the games where someone like Alden had to to be that penetrative force, he simply couldn't be, and I thought he was anonymous against Burnley on Saturday, and, and things are starting to, to maybe rear their head, and, and again, very early into the season, I have a feeling that Alden will suffer the same situation as he did last year, And he will consistently struggle away from home. He might chip in at Anfield with a few goals. But overall, I think he'll be a disappointment. And in many ways, he embodies Liverpool's problem. is that he's great when there's space to play
2: in. But when there's not, it's a bit of a struggle. Hmm. Karthik, let's talk about Middlesbrough Derby win against Sunderland. Um, I have to admit, I didn't get to watch this game. But I did watch some of the highlights. Stuani with an excellent performance, two goals. One from one was a brilliant long-range uh, strike, and the other was a good team goal. Uh, so tell me, how how did Middlesbrough beat Sunderland?
1: They were able to exploit uh, some defensive weaknesses from Sunderland. I-, I thought some very kind of ragged play from Sunderland at the back. Some inconsistent play, uh, guys not marking runners, not picking up uh, guys uh, making moves into the box, and and they were uh, uh, they were beaten. I mean, Stuani was good. Obviously, I thought Negredo again was very very good for Baro. Uh, what a what a signing that's proving to be, and uh, I agree with uh, Chris's comment earlier in the uh, show about gaston ramirez i mean i i thought that this was a, a terrible signing based on what we saw of the uh, of the guy previously in the premier league uh, when he was at uh at southampton a few years ago pochettino basically there was one game uh ramirez was so bad i remember where i think pochettino was still the manager of southampton at the time they said this guy's not playing for me again <laughs> and he got loaned to juve uh, i think a few or somewhere i can't remember where he went um but um the, the, the point being that I think um, we're in a, a situation now where Middlesbrough under Caronca, obviously he's a volatile manager, but he he is now, as a manager, this is a, an interesting point, uh, adding to Chris's point about uh, players acclimating. Caronca comes in from Real Madrid. He has this good Middlesbrough team. He's not able to get them promoted that year. They lose to Norwich in the, in the playoff final. I think he now has kind of learned his way around England to the point where he realizes which players from outside, uh, which uh, foreign players he can bring into a system in England and, mm-hmm. and work. Now, Negredo to me was pretty much a no brainer. I think he's a very good player that uh, uh, just didn't fit Pellegrini's style. I, I think he actually fits kind of a traditional English style and, 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 will do well in this league. And he did well for a while with Manchester city, uh, just was a, a bad fit with, with that particular manager. I, um, I think they've made some very uh, savvy signings and uh, winning a Derby at at Sunderland. Remember, it's been a long time since Sunderland's lost a Derby because they haven't lost to Newcastle in in what seems like an eternity now. Um, Yeah, it's a it's a real statement Uh, on the flip side. uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Chris has more insight into Sunderland. I know he covers them more closely than we do. And and, uh, I was very disappointed by their performance, quite frankly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Chris just had to hop away for some uh, for a phone call he had to take. So we, we've, uh, we thank him for joining us tonight. He'll be back next week. But Sunderland, uh, Karthik, I, uh, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording is that they've signed um, Steven Pienar. uh Car- Chris had a really f- interesting tweet that this is the fifth time uh, that David Moyes has signed Sunderland. And we were talking about how he might help uh, this Sunderland team which is that he'll actually allow Van, he'll provide cover for Van Arnholt, who, who's just bombs forward. Uh, and in some ways, it's, a, it's a good thing because last season, Van Arnholt, uh, Jermaine Defoe aside was their best attacking outlet. So having some cover from him, for him, which is what Stephen Pinar gives you in, uh, with his work rate, uh, and himself, his ability to play on multiple positions on the pitch, uh, might be a good sign. Hopefully is a good signing for Sunderland, isn't it?
1: Well, very well could be a good signing for Sunderland. I I I like the idea, and I tend to agree with Moise's assessment that uh, Leon Osman, uh, who, uh, Layton Baines, excuse me, I'm just losing my train of thought here, yeah. were all improved as players because of Stephen Pinar's work rate and his positioning sense. I think the concern about Pinar now at this age, and, and we saw it in his, his most recent stint at Everton, uh, when uh, Roberto Martinez's system. He just doesn't, um, he just doesn't have the pace anymore. He doesn't right. have the legs anymore. Mm-hmm. That having been said, he's a savvy player. He knows Moyes. I think Moyes uh, is comfortable with, uh, well, we know Moyes is comfortable with certain players, right? That's right. why Everton, there was never that much shopping and changing. That's why he signed Fellaini at Manchester United. That's why uh, he's brought in Pinar here. That's why he signed him five times, right? He, he, right. He, 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 he understands him. I think Pinar will give some leadership in the dressing room and also a sense of positioning is important when you have a guy like von anholt who is uh, mm-hmm. supremely talented but how, how, how do i put it I mean, i think chris agrees with this uh, he's one of the, the the dumbest or just least football savvy fullbacks in this league i mean he's here's always out of position
2: here's a euphemism tactically inept
1: that's the word I, that's the <laughs> term i'm looking for he he is one of the he, his positioning sense is non-existent and that's why he didn't make it a chelsea that's why I think there are even concerns when Sam Allardyce took over uh, Sunderland last year. What am I going to do with this guy? He's going to whip in some crosses. He can get forward. He can score himself. But uh, I, with the way I like to organize my back four, I, I don't want this guy. I think that was probably Allardyce's thought process. Uh, Moyes has quickly recognized that there's a problem there. So you have Pinar. Pinar can cover a lot of the space. Much savvier, much smarter player uh, in, in terms of just football IQ than, than Van anholt So maybe it ends up... Uh, Covering this massive, massive problem that One has.
2: Let's talk about the final game, Karthik. West Ham with a late winner against Bournemouth uh, after Harry Arter was sent off for their second yellow. Um, I think the big talking point against Mikel Antonio. It seems to me, Karthik, that Mikel Antonio is. There's no like average performance from him, there's always crap performances and. Then he scores a goal next week, and that—that's basically what he did last season. He'd have a poor week where he score an own goal, give away a penalty, and then next week he would score a goal. So that's what's happened this week. He scored in the uh, uh, you know in the eighty fifth, eighty sixth minute from a header uh, while he struggled last week.
1: Yeah, and he was rampage, rampaging forward the entire game, right? He was making these these forays. Into Bournemouth territory before he got that goal. Even when Arter was still on the pitch, when it was eleven v eleven, yeah, he's just a frustrating player. I think there's a there's a, a lot of um, how do I put it? There's just a lot of guys that are that have incredible raw talent on this West Ham side, which is why you know part of me says, okay, they they probably should have been in the top four last season. They were the one team that I think generally officiating evens out over the course of a season. Last season I think the one team it didn't even out for was West Ham. They probably finished fourth. They probably finished ahead of Manchester City, Manchester United, and whoever finished sixth, which was I believe Southampton. They probably finished ahead of those three teams if the officiating evens out for them. But then at the same time I could see them finishing eleventh or twelfth in the league. Because they have just this this frustrating group of players, Antonio typifying them all. Um and I'm not quite sure they're going to get as much of a a great season out of Mark Noble as they did last season. So mm. I think um, that's a uh, that's an issue. Now Andy Carroll was hurt again. That's another issue. Uh, if you look at the opposition here, uh, Bournemouth was um, was uh, I, I just think that they um, they they're defensively there seem to be some holes that 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 teams are exploiting now. Manchester United. Took them to task week one uh, in in, in uh, down in Bournemouth. Now as the Olympic Stadium opens in London, even though they held on for 85 minutes and uh, the tail end of that time down a man after Ardor got sent off, I just uh, I just see some things defensively I don't like from them in in terms of shape. Again, this is Eddie Howe, a manager who likes to have his team play, likes to push his fullbacks up, likes to uh, uh, try and keep the ball in midfield. Mm-hmm. So it, it's different than playing for a team that's just going to defend deep. But there are uh, there are some issues with Bournemouth. They have an awful lot of attacking talent. Uh, some of that talent, uh, Max Gretel, uh Afobi, those two guys started on the bench today, which was uh, surprising. But uh, I think they might need to make one or two more defensive signings.
2: Yeah I think I agree with you and that was a point that our listener Pat David had made as well. Uh I think one of the reasons Bournemouth uh, struggled to create chances was the the um the compression in the midfield by by West Ham uh, alongside Mark Noble who you mentioned they had Coyote uh who was actually bombing forward uh more so than Noble did last season and Havard Notweit, uh the ex Borussia Monchengladbach uh midfielder was playing as the, the as the shield in front of the t- uh, front four. And that sort of formation completely nullified uh, Bournemouth, I think, who were trying to create chances from, from the overlapping fullbacks, as you mentioned. Um, so some good signs for West Ham, at least in the center of the park, but the inconsistency will trouble them. And again, from a Burnham perspective, uh, possession aside, they're not creating enough. And I think with some of the players coming back into the mix, Aphobi uh, was on the bench, Gradle on the bench, Graban, uh, Luis Graban on the bench, once they start incorporating those pieces, I think Burnmouth will be okay. Um, we'll be back next week to review all 10 games, including Liverpool versus Tottenham, and update you on the transfers that happen between now and then. Also, remember to keep your eyes on Serie A as a couple of good games will be played on Saturday, including Lazio versus Juventus and Napoli versus AC Milan. Also, the Bundesliga is about to kick off, so there's lots of football for you to feast on. Until next week, on behalf of World Soccer Talk, Kristen Henaj, Karthik Krishna, and myself, Nipun Chopra. Karthik, take us away.
1: Enjoy your football.